0: Join Global Genes at the 2002 Patient Advocacy Summit in San Diego, September 12th through the 14th. We'll be returning to an in-person event this year, and our theme is Rare Life Bonded Together. If you can't make the trip, the event will be available virtually as well. To register for the in-person or virtual summit, go to globalgenes.org and look under the events tab. Hope to see you there. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is RareCast. When Emily Rapp Black's son, Ronan, was diagnosed with the rare and fatal condition Tay-Sachs disease, she turned to writing to make sense of her grief, what his short life would be, and what it meant to be his mother. Her memoir, The Still Point of the Turning World, was written during Ronan's life. Eight years later, she wrote a companion memoir, Sanctuary, in which she explores learning to live after Ronan's death, coming to terms with her loss, and learning that loss is not something that is overcome, but rather absorbed into our beings. We spoke to Black about her two memoirs, her experience as a mother of a child with a rare and fatal disease, and how she came to understand the meaning of the term resilience. Emily, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: We're going to talk about your experience as a mother of a child with a rare and fatal disease Two of your books, The Still Point of the Turning World and Sanctuary, and your own Coming to Terms with Life After Profound Loss, these are very different books in the literature of rare disease. Uh, aside from their literary richness, most rare disease stories start with an incurable diagnosis and then tell these triumphant stories of how a father or a mother wouldn't accept that and there was no treatment for their child and they went out and funded a researcher and developed a therapy. When your son Ronan was diagnosed as having the rare and fatal condition Tay-Sachs disease, you seem to have a complete grasp of what that meant and, and what it meant for Ronan's life, what it would be, and what for your role as his mother would be. What was, what was the way you processed that?
1: Um badly. Um, I mean I think I yes, I I did had heard of Tay Sex before, weirdly from a law and order episode of all things. So I knew a little enough about it. Um and I had actually wanted to I was tested for it, so I was aware of it. Um and you know, I um I just knew that it was going to be the thing that would be the hardest thing I'd ever do. I I just knew it from the get go. And I knew that I loved him, but I also knew that I wasn't going to be someone who chased a cure because to me, the science was, you know, like incontrovertible. And to do so felt like, to felt, felt like a different kind of suffering. Like it's one thing to be still with your child and like help care for them and like relieve their pain if possible. But it's another thing to sort of, for me at least, to put them through any kind of trial, or that was a decision that I made, and I understand that other people make different decisions, but I processed it through writing, essentially, and through talking, and like, you know, 7,000 therapists, or whatever, (laughs) like, my friends, like, my parents, my family, like, I, it was something, I mean, it just, um, I think, but writing is a thing that helped me process it the most, which was a surprise to me,
0: yeah. You mentioned that you were tested, this is a a disease that's associated with Ashkenazi Jews. You're not an Ashkenazi Jew. I am not. Uh, what compelled you to get tested? And, and can you explain why, even though you were tested, the results didn't show up anything?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I was born with a rare congenital birth defect. So I have wear an artificial leg and have some steps four. So I was like, I want all the bases covered here. Um, and Ronan's father was an Ashkenazi is Ashkenazi Jewish descent. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll just get the test. And they were like, you don't need it. And I was like, I'd like to have it anyway. And so I did. The traditional test for Tay-Sachs, and this has changed, this is like 12 years ago. So this may have changed. I don't actually know. But at the time when I was having the test, it, it's part of the quote Jewish panel. And so that particular test um, tests for the most common strains of Tay-Sachs within the Ashkenazi Jewish community. My, my Tay-Sachs strain is not Ashkenazi. It's actually Sephardic from Northern Africa. So I have a very different strand that doesn't show up on the traditional test. It would have to be a different kind of test for that to appear. Um, Ronan's father, of course, was a, a, you know an expected Ashkenazi Jewish um, mutation. So I have a different mutation. There are like 100 plus mutations of tay The traditional standard pregnancy tests only test for like seven to 10 of those. So that's why it didn't show up.
0: People think of grieving as something that comes after loss. Still Point was written during Ronan's life, but there's an overwhelming sense of grief throughout the book. Grief not only for the things you and Ronan won't experience, but the inevitable loss you'll be facing. Mm -hmm. What have you learned about grief through this process?
1: I mean, you know, there's a quote from... um, I think it's Rilke that says, and I'm not going to say it completely right, but he says love and death are the greatest gifts we're given and mostly they pass by us unopened. Um, and I feel like being that close to death and dying made me appreciate life in a different way. So that was kind of a surprising, like, um, it just, it just made me want to live because he couldn't, if that makes sense. Um, and grief, grief is a lifelong thing. Grief is not something that happens and then is overcome. Like you don't go over a wall into like non-grief, like you're in it for the, for the duration. Um, and it comes out in weird ways. You know, it's like Dronin died in 2013. Um, just a couple weeks ago, I was at a, I was in San Diego. I wasn't even really thinking about him. And I suddenly had this like, this horrible, like just, sadness that landed on me thinking he popped into my mind and I was just sobbing like and it was okay like you know I mean it's not like that happens a lot to me but it's like grief is just like it's in you it's like in your DNA after that and if you want to look at it that way and it's something you have to continually process and it's also something that our culture wants to be you know over with like done and dusted and it's just not that way so in the, in the groups that I work in, like I run a, a child loss, women writing for child loss writing workshop, you know, we always talk about how grief is just this strange, windy road, and you're on it, you know, and the only thing, the only way to sort of be on it and be okay is to have people on the journey with you, um, and to understand that it never really
0: ends, it just changes. You mentioned you were born with uh, a birth defect. You had your leg amputated just above the knee as a child. How did that experience shape your approach to mothering a child with a rare disease?
1: Um, I mean, I kind of, it, I don't know. It's, it's so different, right? Because it's just a different, it's such a different disease. Like mine was purely physical and, and, and with Ronan, obviously it was like, you know, his whole system was just broken. Like his whole body was broken. Um, I, I think I was mad about it at first. I just felt like I did this myself. <laughs> like, why do I have to do this again? So I had, I had some anger around it, but I also, I also understand that, and, and I mean, obviously parenting him clarified that to me, is that, you know, you, when you have a kid, you love them. That's it. Like, you just do, they are there here and you do everything you can for them. And that was no different than if he had been non-affected by Tay-Sachs. So, and that's how my parents were with me. Like, okay, here's the situation. It's maybe not what we thought it was gonna be, but this is what we've got. And so I was surprised, cause I'm not exactly a practical person, that I was very practical about that. I was like, nope. Here's what I wanna do. Like, I want him to have high quality of life. I don't wanna be in the hospital all the time, cause that's not a fun place to be. If the end, if the end is going to be the same. Um, I want him to have music and like anything that can help him enjoy his body for the brief time he's here. That just was clear to me from the get-go. And I don't know how much it's linked to my own experience, but uh, probably if I thought about it more, I just think I, you know, when you have a different body, there's nothing you can do about it. Like you just have to deal with it. Um, And I had a different son and I had to deal with it. And so I did.
0: There are many writers and poets who are present in, in both of your books. Mary Shelley is among the most prominent in Still Point, mm-hmm. both because of her own story and because of her work. What spoke to you about Mary Shelley?
1: Oh, I've had a Mary Shelley thing my whole life. I mean, I re- when I read Frankenstein for the first time, I was like, I so identified with the monster. Like, I really understood this idea of of not being understood physically and and how that can impact your emotional life. I'm not saying I'm a monster, I'm just saying like I, I really felt the book was so compelling and I still do. So I'd always had this kind of fascination with Frankenstein's monster and this idea of what creation, like what is what do creation and sort of responsibility, how do those two things go together? Like you create a being like how responsible are you to that being? And what happens if you don't take responsibility or if you reject that person or that being that you've created. And so to me, it's like an, a giant story or a metaphor, if you will, about the power and perils of creativity as well as, as, as love in a parental sense. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and I, and also Mary Shelley's life story is very compelling and she did lose children. She was a kind of, you know, a very young writer. Um, so she, so there was definitely like the interest in that was also really, Compelling to me, but more than anything else, I just thought I think the story is it just touches on so many different things in a very propulsive and interesting and like you know very nineteenth century way. I mean, when you read it now, you're like this is a nineteenth century novel. <laughs> it's a little bit ridiculous, but like it's still really great, you know
0: <laughs> one of the things I was very conscious about reading Still Point is your husband Rick, who's present in the first paragraph but gone from most of the book and when he does show up, he's little more than a piece of furniture. You say he was a good father in Sanctuary. You add that he was not a good husband and you were not a good wife. You talk about this briefly in the afterward of Still Point, And again, in Sanctuary, there's a, a bitter email that he sends that's very painful to read about. But his absence was noticeable to be, me as a reader, and it intensified a, a sense of loneliness, I felt, Reading about your experience being Ronan's mother. There are many marriages that don't survive caring for a critically ill child. Why did you choose not to address this more overtly as it occurred?
1: Um, because out of respect for Ronan's father. Yeah. Like, I, it's my story, and, and, and he's a part of it, but he, um, I, it, when you write nonfiction, you have to, to understand that you, you are telling the story of other people and he didn't want to be a part of it and so I respected that and I still do I think that if you don't want to be written about and it's something so intensely close to you and so so heart-wrenching then you should have that privacy um and and I also think too for me like having had a disability I've never had privacy my entire life I've never had a sense of privacy and I think that not everyone is like that so I did it out of respect to him Um, And I felt like I said the things I needed to say that showed how they impacted me. Um, But I didn't want to editorialize and I didn't want those scenes in there, partly because they're just really painful. And I think part of writing a memoir is the, you know, part of any kind of writing is that what you exclude is just as powerful as what you include. And so all the exclusions that I have in there are out of respect and honoring a request from him.
0: You talked about writing as a way to to process. Good writers, no matter what they're writing about, are often writing about writing. You've studied writing. You teach writing. Writing, again, is a a way to process the world. What role did writing play in your ability to come to terms with Ronan's condition, be a, a mother to him, and live beyond him?
1: I mean, it did everything. It was everything. Like, which is a surprise. Like, I mean, writing is never something that I was like, yay, writing. Like, even though I'm a writer, I always saw it as a kind of, you know, it's not easy. And writers are always yammering on about how hard it is to write. And it is. But for me, it was like, um, I've always had a very active life of the mind. And that's, I went right up there. And I was like, thanks. I got all these resources. Now it's like this giant distraction, right? But more than a distraction, it's a way for me to to try to make sense of this thing that doesn't make sense to me it's a it's like a complicated puzzle and but there are all these other people poets and thinkers who've talked about these these sort of these these human issues of life and death and unfairness and chaos and so how can I marshal those things for comfort and also just to try to wrangle with with questions that can't be answered I mean I was a philosophy major I'm like all about the questions that can't be answered but I think there's value in in the trying and in the labor of wrestling with them. To me, that's that's very important to me, and I'd forgotten that until this happened because I was, you know, not a, not a philosophy professor, but that really that was that was a thing that kept kept me tethered in the world, to be honest. Yeah.
0: Sanctuary was published eight years after Still Point. Ronan is very present in this work, although through memory you found love and remarried and gave birth to a healthy girl, Charlie, who you found your door at the end of suffering. Two words are prominent in this book. The first is sanctuary. It's title, sanctuary shows up in many forms in the book. You live in a church, Kent, your husband becomes an Island of safety to you. Your long runs and two hour stationary bike workers works workouts are a form of sanctuary for you. And, and the world of poetry and literature is also a place you turn. What does sanctuary mean to you? And, and what is the importance of people going through an experience like this to, to have a sanctuary?
1: I mean, I think, you know, I think sanctuaries come in so many different shapes and sizes and manifestations. For example, friendship is a huge sanctuary for me. Um, you know, community, I I, I mean, for sure. And that's, I think, really present in both books, because I've always had a a big community of, you know, kind of chosen family in addition to my family. And I, I think people, people go through a lot of stuff. Like some people go through, you could say more than others, but everyone's carrying something. There's, I think it's a Plato code. I can't remember, but it's like, everyone's kind of carrying around these 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 wounds and and sometimes you you just need a place to set it down whether that's with a person or in a relationship or an actual place or an activity um, or intellectual exercise because we can only bear so much right and so having a place to just rest like what i wanted people to feel in sanctuary like the image that kept coming to me which is why there's this whole section about like viking ships is like just like sitting in a boat like you know you're in the water and it might be kind of bumpy and you might go over some like bumpy waves and be a little scared, but you're in this, this sort of container and you're gonna be okay, right? You'll be changed, but you'll be okay. And that, that was kind of what I wanted people to feel. Um, so I think it's really powerful. I mean, I think the hardest thing about going through grief is the loneliness that it inevitably evokes. And that the only salve for that, for me, has been books, literature, and people.
0: The other word that's prominent in the book is resilience. This is a word when it first appears in the book that you explain you don't like. Why is that? What don't you like about the word resilience?
1: I actually think the root word is quite interesting. I just think people misuse it. They use it as a synonym for strength. And that's not what it means. It means sort of a combination of vulnerability and resolution. Like it's, it's um, that's what I, I mean, I just think I heard it all the time. I was like, Oh, they're so resilient. And what they meant was they're so strong, but resilient is a much more complicated word than that. Um, and it doesn't just mean brute strength or grit or powering through. It means kind of to break, you know, to bend, to break and to rebuild. Um, it's just different than this kind of like, you know, what would be the, like a sledgehammer of like strength. Like, I'm just going to keep going. You know, it, it's not that, it's, it's something else. It's about being vulnerable and open and willing to be kind of cracked open. And, and that's when things shift and and a new kind of resolve comes in, uh, a new reason or purpose or meaning of life or living comes in. So I just felt like it was being misused. So I I felt like I wanted to sort of have people think about the word in a different way. You,
0: You actually explore resilience from Viking ships to butterflies. One of the things that seems to bother you about the term is the intentionality assigned to it you right it seems to me that resilience is not always a function of the desire to survive either you survive or you don't there is no fault no moral judgment assigned to either outcome have you come how have you come to understand resilience being on the other side of this now i mean i think the,
1: i think the whole idea actually is that you're never on the other side of chaos or potential heartbreak like that that's the lesson for me like so you are always shifting and shaping and like being broken open and healing and being broken open and healing. It's not a one and done process. So for me, accepting the sort of turbulence of that word uh, at its root was really important. And it has been, this continues to be important to me. Like, I, I think we have this idea that, you know, we go through something really hard and then that's, that's like our share of it. You know, we, we don't have to go through hard things again. And it's just not true. Like, people go through hard things their whole lives or they, you know, whatever. So I I think that kind of, that narrative is, I think needs to be complicated. Um, And I also think there's this, there is, I think this is actually an American cultural kind of phenomenon. Like we we have this idea that if you work hard and you're strong enough and you work hard enough that you can like make things better. And that's just not true. (laughs) Like sometimes it's not true. And that doesn't mean that the person who's trying to make it better or save their kid or change their life or whatever is that is a failure, it just means that the expectations are unrealistic and that like that whole overcoming kind of narrative permeates so much of how we think about our lives and their trajectories. And it, it can be really devastating to people. I mean, I know it was for me, like, um,
0: to that point, I, I want to read another passage from the book. You write, There is no recovery from trauma and lost there exists, no phoenix from the ashes as an inspirational model. Instead, the integration of an event happens incrementally through the repeatedly walked labyrinth of time and memory, that great nexus of healing sparked by emotion. It's almost as if we must metabolize the event in our bodies, as if we could eat and experience, swallow it whole, feel it churn in our bellies and bowels. I like this idea that everything that was part of an experience becomes part of one's physical self, part of blood and bone and water. What would you like people to understand about experiencing grief, loss, or, or the idea of of resilience in this sense?
1: I would say, I think, To be a human person is incredibly complicated, which is not a very sort of profound statement, but we don't know. Like, we have so little control in some ways about what happens to us, but we can control like how we reframe it and the people we reach out to and the the stories that we tell. I mean, I think storytelling saves people's lives. I mean, I absolutely believe that. And that when you're in a human body, you have experiences that other human bodies have had across time and history. So you're in a conversation with other people who were once alive and will be alive. And, and that to me is a very comforting idea, as, as sort of strange as it may sound. Uh, just this idea that, you know, like, for example, from in my in my story with Ronan, like so many women have lost children and will continue to lose children and haven't lost children yet. And, and the, all of those stories, like we to tell them and to speak them and to make them beautiful and true, even if they're brutal, is is to me what the goal of an artist is. Like, that's what artists do. They're like, look at this hard thing. Like, let me take you with me. Let me teach you something about being alive in all of its complications and heartbreaks. Otherwise, like, I just don't have any interest in, in, in living any other way. Um, I just think it's a very, um, obviously Parenting Ronan completely changed my life in almost. In, in literally every way and and he he just clarified so many things for me not that there's a lesson or whatever I I'm trying to make him into a lesson but I just think he showed me sort of he brought me down to the kind of like the root of what it is to be human and what it is to love and it's both beautiful and completely terrifying.
0: If you'd like to hear Emily or meet her, you can do so at the Global Genes Wear Patient Advocacy Summit, which runs from September 12th through the 14th in San Diego. You can find more information at globalgenes.org. Emily Rapp-Black, author of The Still Point of the Turning World and Sanctuary. Emily, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening.